Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary again. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys to worship the Lord and just enjoy uh, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to gather and sing the praises of our Heavenly Father. It's always a blessed time, that's for sure. Today we're going to be looking at yet another parable that Jesus shared uh, to those around him recently in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We've been covering a, a number of parables that are unique to Luke's Gospel. Okay, They're not found in uh, Matthew or Mark or John's Gospel, only here in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 15 laid out three of Jesus' more popular parables, at least the ones from the, the book of Luke. Uh, We looked at the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the prodigal son, as it's sometimes referred to as. And the emphasis in all three of the parables from chapter 15 dealt with God's heart for the lost, how God loves the lost sinner and rejoices every time one single sinner repents and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here in chapter 16, we're going to see that Jesus turns his focus towards the Pharisees and in speaking about their love for money. In a sense, the parables of chapter 15 can be contrasted with the parables of chapter 16, uh, where chapter 15 emphasizes God's love for the lost, while chapter 16 emphasizes the Pharisees' love for riches. In our text this morning, we're going to be looking at the first of what appears to be two parables in chapter 16. Interestingly enough, the two parables uh, are not mentioned by Jesus as parables, which has led some uh, to suggest that perhaps these were real-life examples that Jesus used here in chapter 16. Uh, These accounts are shared right after some parables, and they sound as if they could be parables, but to say with 100% certainty that these are parables, well, that isn't for me to say. I wouldn't feel as comfortable to say that. Um, It could be that these are real uh, life events and uh, accounts of things that took place, which is of interest, especially when you get to the second parable in chapter 16, which we will look to do probably in two weeks. Uh, We'll see. But uh, whether they are parables or not, they are definitely um, God's word to us. And there are uh, some lessons for us to learn here that I think the Lord would have us to pay close attention to and make application to our own lives. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And the title of our study this morning is going to be Principles of Stewardship. Okay, Principles of of stewardship. Once you're there in Luke's gospel, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read through the entirety of our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Um, If you're not reading from the uh, New King James, I want to encourage you just to do your best uh, to follow along in whatever Bible translation uh, you may be reading from. And so uh, Luke, the physician, Uh, He continues his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in chapter 16, verse 1. He, referring to Jesus, he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, 
What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and This opportunity that we have to just dive into it, allow it to mold us and shape us, to speak to us. And Lord, I do pray that we come just open to the work that your spirit desires to do uh, in and through your word. Lord, that we would be that soft, um, pliable, supple piece of clay that you desire to mold and shape. That we wouldn't be too hard, that you wouldn't have to pull out the chisel and chisel away upon us, Lord. But that we'd be able to just... um, sense the Spirit's leading and guiding and and receive all that you have for us. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We give you this study. Uh, We've opened your word, I pray, in tune, in like manner, Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our ears are open to all that you have for us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, this account before us has caused a lot of difficulties and some controversy when it comes to the overall interpretation of the parable, because on first read, it may seem to be praising an unjust and fraudulent steward. It is interesting that there are some parables that we read and Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation or the application and we're left to pray through it and, and ask the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and discernment in properly interpreting what Jesus is teaching. Then there are other parables where Jesus clearly gives us both the interpretation and the application. And even in some of those parables, we still sometimes struggle. And this is one of those parables, I believe. Here we're given the application, sure enough. Okay, Jesus lays it out for us basically in verses 9 through 13. But the overall interpretation is a bit of a challenge. Okay? But don't worry, we're going to go through this. We're going to try and make sense of it all with the help of God's Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. And I hope that we leave this place with a better uh, and clearer understanding of the teaching that Jesus gives here and... More importantly, that we're able to walk away uh, having heard from the Lord and allowing his word to mold and shape us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, 
For those of you who like to outline uh, the text, maybe for those of you who like to take notes, uh, I do want to let you know that we're going to note six different things that relate to certain principles pertaining to stewardship. The first of which is found in verse 1, where we note the accusation against the steward. Read our opening verse again with me, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. We'll stop right there. Verse 1, Jesus shares something with his disciples regarding a certain account dealing with a rich man and his steward. And again, this could be a parable Jesus was sharing with his disciples, or it could have been a real-life example of something that had happened. Either way, it doesn't change the overall interpretation or application of the text, so it really doesn't matter all too much. Jesus had been addressing the Pharisees primarily in chapter 15, but here in the opening of chapter 16, he turns his attention back towards his disciples. Nonetheless, we do know that the Pharisees were still around, They're still listening to what Jesus had to say to his disciples, where we're going to see next week in the subsequent verses after our text here this morning, okay, that they are going to respond to this teaching of Jesus's. So even though it wasn't directed to them, they have a response uh, towards this teaching, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. Anyways, Jesus, he's speaking to his disciples. He tells them about a certain rich man who had a steward. Now, a steward was a certain kind of administrator, a person who managed the domestic affairs of either a family or a business. Uh, The head of the house or the master of the house would entrust a steward with the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out uh, the proper portion to every servant and even to the children that were not yet of age. Basically, Everything the master owned was entrusted into the care and keep of this steward. The steward would manage his master's wealth, and he would actually use it for the profit of his master. So he would buy and sell with his master's goods in order to bring about a profit. He does not own the wealth himself, but he has access to it all. Okay? And this brings us to our first principle of stewardship. Okay? We are all stewards of the resources that God has given to us. Nothing we have belongs to us. We are simply stewards of things God has allowed us to manage. Psalm 24 states, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. See, God owns it all. It is all his, according to Psalm 24, verse 1. The money that you have in your pocket right now, okay, the savings you have in your bank accounts and the retirement plan you've been building towards, it all belongs to the Lord. Now, some of you may object, okay, and some of you may think, no, okay, that's my money. You know, I worked for it. I sacrificed for it. Thank you, James. I got up early and stayed up late. I put in the extra hours to ensure I made a good living for myself and for my family. I did this by my own strength, right, or by my own power. Well, let me remind you of what Moses teaches us in the book of Deuteronomy. For it is there that Moses writes, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. 
You see, your very strength, the power that you use to get your work done, it is a gift from the Lord. He gave it to you. If it were not for Him giving you the power to get wealth, you would have nothing. It all belongs to the Lord. John the Baptist testifies, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. In John chapter 3, verse 27, he says that. And James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the first century church, he warned us, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights. Everything good, everything perfect in your life is actually a gift from our Heavenly Father above. And this stewardship that we have been given, listen you guys, it's talking about more than just money or finances. Okay. Now I know anytime people hear money and finances at church, it's like, oh no, what's he going to say? Okay, I'm just going to give you a forewarning. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about riches and, and earthly riches and finances, and I hope that won't scare you away, okay? But we are stewards of all the resources that God has given to us. You see, we are to be good stewards not only of our financial resources, okay, our wealth, our earthly riches, if you will, but we are also to be good stewards of the time that God has given to each of us. Ephesians chapter 5 states, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, God has given us all a set amount of time on this earth, and we need to be faithful stewards of that time. Well, we're to be good stewards of the gifts and abilities that God has given to us as well. We need to use those gifts and abilities for him. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 admonishes us, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has tremendously blessed okay, some of us, some of you guys, with great gifts and abilities. Okay, we all have at least one gift, according to First Peter, but I know many of you have been given many gifts and abilities and talents. God expects us to use those gifts in order to minister to one another. And okay, we are also called to be good stewards of the very gospel itself. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Okay, God has committed the treasure of his truth to us as earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul exhorts Timothy too on how we must guard this truth that has been given to us. And then he goes on in 2 Timothy, how we must invest it in the lives of others by sharing the truth of the gospel with those who will be faithful to share it with other people. And so we see that God has called us as stewards. Stewards of all of his resources. Okay, The wealth that he's given to us, the time that he's given to us, the gifts and abilities that he's given to us, and the very gospel message. I want it real simple. Think of it really simply like this, okay? We are stewards of God's time, his treasure, his tal- our talents, excuse me, and the truth, okay? Four T's, time, treasure, talents, truth, 
Okay, God's given us those four things that we are to be stewards of. And let's make sure that we're being good stewards of all four of those things that God's given to us. Well, according to our opening verse, this particular steward seems to be not a very good steward, for we hear about a certain accusation that's been brought to the rich man against this steward, stating how this steward was wasting his goods. Or your translation may read that he was squandering his possessions or squandering his property. Now, the word accusation is a very interesting word here. The word is diabolo in the Greek, and it's only used this one time in the New Testament. It's derived from another Greek word, which is diabolos, and you may have guessed, uh, or you may know where that word comes from, okay? It's the word that we use that speaks of the false accuser of the brethren, the devil. And so, the word accusation in this Greek form here, it carries a strong sense of to falsely accuse or to slander or to defame someone. But I will say at the same time, this word can also be used not only of those who bring a false charge, but also of those who disseminate the truth concerning a man, but do so maliciously or insidiously with hostility. Uh, An example in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Okay, this word's used in describing the men who brought accusation against Daniel. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Daniel and, and his account. Uh, in Daniel chapter 6, you read of some people, they don't like Daniel. My paraphrase, right? They don't like Daniel. They come up with a plot and a plan. They go to the king and they say, hey, king, you're so wonderful. You're so awesome. Don't you think nobody, you know, nobody should pray to anybody else but you for at least 30 days? And the king says, yeah, that's a... That's a great idea. Let's make that the law. And they do so with the intent and purpose, knowing full well that Daniel prays to the Lord every single day. And so as soon as Daniel breaks the law, right, they come and bring accusation. Now, their accusation was a truthful one, right? Daniel did, in fact, pray to the Lord against the decree that was sent out, saying people could only pray to the king. But their intention right? The heart behind their accusation, it was nefarious. It was malicious and, and, and done with the intent to bring harm. That's this word. That's what this word means, okay? And so it could be that this accusation that was brought against the steward was a false accusation of someone that had a beef with the steward, or at the very least, it was an accusation that was brought to the rich man with evil intent and malice towards the steward. Now, if it was a false accusation, it would make the parable a little bit more palatable if we understood the steward as being innocent or or falsely accused. But the fact that Jesus refers to the steward as unjust later on in the text in verse 8 makes it difficult to know with certainty, was he unjust or was he falsely accused? It's hard to tell. Was the master simply referring to him as unjust because of what he did after being called out? Or was he unjust beforehand? I believe the text lends us to believe there was some sort of truth to the accusation, but we can't say with certainty. Let's move along, though, to the next thing we want to note regarding the accountability over the steward. Read verse 2 with me. It says, So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. 
After hearing the accusation against the steward, the rich man called him forth and demanded an accounting of his stewardship. He told the steward that he could no longer serve as steward in the household. And so the rich man, he said to the steward, give an account of your stewardship. He is being called forth. Give an explanation for those accusations he was being told about, and uh, he had to give an account of all that he was entrusted to as a steward. And this brings us to our second principle of stewardship that I believe God would have us to know. We are all going to be held accountable for how we managed God's resources, okay? God has called us all as stewards. And one day we're going to be called forth to give an account for how we use what God entrusted to us. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 clearly states, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We are all going to stand before the Lord one day and give an account of our actions. The book of Revelation describes how certain books are kept of all of our deeds and actions and those books will be opened up and reviewed upon judgment day. Revelation chapter 20 states, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. That's verse 12. Verse 14, it continues. He says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, some of you uh, Bible scholars uh, may be saying to yourself, but yeah, that only is talking about those not written in the Lamb's book of life, right? I mean, that doesn't apply to us as Christians. Jesus paid the price for all of my deeds, and I don't have to worry about standing before the Lord and giving an account, right? And you'd be right to a certain degree. I agree that what's described in Revelation 20 is for the unbeliever whose name's not found in the book of life. And I would agree that Jesus has indeed paid the price for all of our misdeeds, our sins and shortcomings, all the works of our flesh. And I would agree that we will not be judged for those deeds when it comes to judgment day. Jesus paid the price for us. He took God's judgment on our behalf upon the cross of Calvary. And we can praise the Lord for that. We will not be judged along with the wicked. But, listen you guys, that does not mean that we won't still have to stand before the Lord and give an account, that we won't be held accountable for our actions. How do we know this? Well, 2 Corinthians describes for us what I believe to be a special and unique judgment that all believers will face. It is not the great white throne judgment of the book of Revelation, but we will all come before what's known as the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account for our stewardship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 speaks of this judgment seat. The judgment before the Bema seat of Christ is not a judgment that will determine our eternal resting place. You see, as believers and followers of Jesus, our place in heaven is secure, but it will decide what sort of rewards we are given in heaven. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians how our works will be tested as by fire to see of what sort they are. He writes 
Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Listen, there is no escaping our own accountability. We will all be called forth to give an account one day. For those who died without Christ, they will be held accountable for all of their works and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. For those who have Christ, we will all give an account for our stewardship before the judgment seat of Christ. And there our works, our deeds, our stewardship will be tested. And only those things which were done for Christ with a true and sincere heart will last. And my hope and my prayer for us all is twofold in this regard. Okay? One, that none of us will have to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, okay? That each and every one of us here today have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that he has paid the penalty for your sins, and that you will not have to face that judgment before the great white throne judgment. But two, also, okay, that when we are called before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're asked to give an account of our stewardship, that it would result in many rewards and treasures for us in eternity, right? I hope we don't, you know, get in and then like smoke's blowing off of us. Like, well, I made it, you know, I got nothing to show for it, but I made it, you know, and and maybe you'll be satisfied with that. But I I hope that we would strive to be investing and and laying up treasures in, in heaven, right? Well, let's continue on to the next thing we want to note. We've noted the accusation against the steward, the accountability over the steward. Now let's look at the awareness of the steward in verses 3 and 4. It says, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. We'll stop right there. The steward was in a tough spot here. Okay, He's being called to give a final account of his stewardship and was then going to basically be fired. The rich man already said he would no longer be able to serve as steward. And so the steward knows once he gives that final uh, account, okay, he's going to be fired. He's going to be left without any sort of job or means to provide for himself. So what will he do? Okay, his, his stewardship's being taken from him. He's presumably physically unable to perform manual labor like digging, and, and he's too proud to beg. Okay, what's he to do? Well, in verse 4, the steward says, I've resolved what to do. Okay, it's that idea like, I, I've got it. You know, the, the light bulb, I, that's what I kind of see. You know, the light bulb goes off, ding, you know. Oh, I know what I'm going to do, Right? An idea pops into the steward's head about what he could do, knowing the fact that he was being called to give a final accounting of his stewardship. And his main focus, 
I want you guys to notice this. His main focus was upon setting himself up for when he lost his stewardship, making sure that he'd be taken care of after the fact, that he would have a place to go, a place to be welcomed into when it was all said and done. And I bring this up not to note another principle of stewardship. We'll get to some more, but not just yet. I simply want to pose a question I think that we all must consider this morning. Knowing that we are all, in fact, stewards of the resources that God has given to us, and knowing that we will all be held accountable one day in the future, what will you resolve to do knowing those facts? Okay? The unjust steward, understanding his position as a steward and realizing the fact that he's being called in to give an account of his stewardship, he made sure to come up with an idea that would set him up for success after his accounting. What will you do? What will you resolve in your own heart and in your own, own mind to do knowing that you are going to one day stand before the Lord and give an account of your own stewardship. Listen, you guys, I, I pray that each and every one of us will give the due diligence needed in order to comprehend and honestly and sincerely answer that question. What are you going to resolve to do? knowing these facts. Let's move on. Next, we're going to note the actions by the steward in verses 5 through 7. Again, read along with me as I continue through our text. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And so he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. We'll stop right there. Let me start by saying something really important here. I need you all, I need all of you guys to understand. The actions of this steward in and of themselves are not something that we should be replicating. Okay? This steward is defrauding his master and stealing from him. Okay? Jesus is not using the example of this steward's specific actions as something we should be emulating. Exodus chapter 20 states, You shall not steal. Very cut and dry, very simple. Okay, it's one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Stealing from our masters, stealing from our employers is not something we should be doing. Does everyone understand that? I need everyone to understand. Like, you understand this is not what Jesus is teaching right now, okay? That's not what this is saying. Okay, let's consider the actions by the steward and what we can glean from these verses. That's not what it's saying, but what is it saying, okay? The steward calls all his master's debtors to him and one by one asks how much they owe their master. Now, to me, the fact that he, the steward has to even ask how much each person owes perhaps is an indicator of his poor performance as a steward, right? He should have known what each person owed because that would be part of his responsibility as a steward, okay? But that isn't the point we're going to make here. The steward, he tells each of his master's debtors to quickly take their bill and change it to a lesser amount. And the idea behind these bills is that they were records of their debt, like a ledger that was kept for accounting purposes and knowing how much you still owed. You know, it's kind of like a, a ledger book and you would have in there like, hey, I owe this person, you know, whatever, uh, 50 
bushels of wheat or whatever. And then you would go to the uh, steward, and the steward would receive your, your payment and say, okay, yeah, you gave me five bushels, I'll sign off on that. And then you have your ledger, and you keep the ledger, and you, you bring it back and forth every time you, you make a payment, all right? Now, it would seem, based upon the types of debts mentioned here, that the master was a rich landowner who had leased out his land to workers who have, would have to pay back the landowner through the harvest of their fields. Whatever they reaped, they would have to give a portion of it to the owner. One guy owed a hundred measures of oil. Okay? Well, we, what we don't know, because it just says measures of oil, what we don't know is that's like 800 to 900 gallons of oil. Okay? That's a that's a lot of olive oil, okay? Uh, it would seem apparent that this particular man had leased an olive grove from the rich man. Another said to have owed a hundred measures of wheat, which was between a thousand and twelve hundred bushels of wheat. Obviously, this man seems to have leased some land of wheat uh, fields. Now, the steward decided to give all of his master's debtors a discount. Some were given more of a discount than others. Some got a 50% discount. Others are given a 20% discount. But all were given some sort of deal, right? It's the, he says, hey, how much do you owe? Oh, you owe 100? Hey, just write 50. Okay, yeah, here, I'll sign off on it. Oh, how much do you owe? Oh, you owe 100 too? Okay, just write down 80. And, and the idea is, as the, um, as the steward, he would sign off on this in the ledger saying, yep, that, you're, you're good to go, right? Well, that's going to make all the the debtors really happy, right? They're going to think, well, this is a great deal, right? Well, by his actions, okay, again, just looking at what we read in verse 4, the steward was doing this because he wanted to make sure that he would have a place to go after he was fired from his stewardship. By his actions, the steward was relying upon the code of reciprocity. Say it again. Reciprocity. Man, I blew it in first service too, and I said I'd get it right in second service. Reciprocity. Yeah. Reciprocal. He's going to reciprocate what he did, right? Okay? By gaining the favor of those who were indebted to his master, he would hopefully find food and, and housing and quite possibly another source of income for himself after losing his stewardship. So in the eyes of this unjust steward... You know, the the ends that he was hoping for, they justified the means by which he operated. Yeah, what he did was illegal and unethical, but he was setting himself up for the future. The ends justify the means. Well, you guys, that's the way of this world. The world lives by the mantra, the end justifies the means. The idea of being, uh, if your overall intention and goals are for good, then it really doesn't matter how you obtain those goals. All that really matters is the end product. You know, a good outcome excuses any wrongs committed to obtain said uh, outcome. Listen, you guys, this is not a biblical perspective. Okay? This is not a biblical worldview. It should not be something that we as believers adhere to or support or you know, go along with. Oh yeah, well, the ends justify the means. It's okay. Absolutely not. Okay? And this leads to another principle regarding stewardship. Listen, you guys, the means by which we do things are just as important, if not more important, than the actual outcome. Okay? God is holy. 
And he calls us to be like him. Peter writes, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Paul writes in Philippians, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Peter writes, in 1 Peter, about having our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may, by our good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter, our, uh, Peter addressed our conduct amongst Gentiles. Paul addresses it amongst believers. When he wrote to Timothy, exhorting him not to despise his youth, but to be an example to the believers in the world, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. James states, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show. Okay, let him prove it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You see, whether we are interacting with believers or non-believers, it doesn't change a thing. Our conduct, how we live our life, the means by which we go about our daily business is very important. All right? When we will prove ourselves wise and full of understanding when we stand out from the world and their tactics of justifying the means by which they accomplish things. God is, I would say, more concerned with how we get to an end than he is with the end himself. The ends do not justify the means if the means cause us to sin and go against God's holy word. Do not let yourselves be led into thinking that God will bless unholy means that accomplish a deceptive good okay and i'm going to say deceptive good because we might say oh but look at all the good that came from it right it's okay because you know look at the outcome listen you guys it's deceptive because it cannot be good if the means by which you accomplish them are evil god will not bless evil means and so you cannot call that good no matter how you know, much we want to re, restate it or, or paint over it, you know, it, it, it won't change the fact. Well, let's move on. And we're going to note something that comes across somewhat shockingly as we hear of the accolade for the steward in verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. We'll stop right there. Here in verse 8 is where we usually start to get tripped up in our understanding of this parable or of this account. You would think, okay, or at least I think, uh, maybe this is just me, but I think that the rich man or the master would cry out, you know, away with this man, you know, cast him, you know, into the debtor's prison and keep him there until he's returned every last coin that he's stolen from me. That guy cheated me, stole from me, and he's going to have to pay, right? But far from that, instead of chastening him for his dishonesty, the master commends him for his ingenuity, for his shrewdness. The phrase dealt shrewdly, it carries the idea of acting prudently. According to one of my Bible lexicons, it speaks of a wise, prudent, and sensible manner in which one conducts himself and his affairs. 
The steward understood the situation he was in, the need to act promptly and decisively. He came up with a plan to ensure his future success and he executed it masterfully. Again, I want to make it clear that Jesus is not using this steward in his actions as an example for us to emulate. We understand this further in the second part of verse 8 where Jesus speaks of how the sons of this world operate. Jesus is using this example of the steward as a means of contrast. Okay? He's comparing the actions of the sons of the world with the sons of light. Remember that the word parable simply means to cast alongside. A parable is meant to be put alongside a heavenly truth. Sometimes the parable is one that's meant to be contrasted for differences. Okay? Sometimes they're meant to be compared for likenesses. Here it is plain to see that Jesus is using the example of the steward as a son of this world to contrast it with his disciples and us as sons of light. Okay? Jesus spoke of how the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation, in their time, okay, than the sons of light. What does that mean? Well, basically, as one commentator I read put it, he said this, the people in the world are on the phone talking to their investment counselors, checking figures on their calculators, shrewdly and carefully planning for their future. Not so the children of light. We're not as aggressive or as wise in preparing for our eternal future as our worldly colleagues are in preparing for their temporal future. Listen, this is not how things should be, you guys. We should be just as shrewd and wise and aggressive in our endeavors to plan for a certain eternal future as the children of the world are in planning for their uncertain temporal futures. And this is the point I believe Jesus is making here for his disciples. The point of the parable is not to commend the unjust steward and his actions, but to commend his shrewdness, his ability to assess the situation, develop a plan, and seize the moment that was before him. When it comes to managing the spiritual affairs of our lives, we need to be able to recognize the situations that we're in. We need to be able to develop a plan through God's leading, using the wisdom that He's given us through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. And then we're to seize the opportunities before us to prepare for our eternal future. We need to be wise and we need to take advantage of the present situations we find ourselves in to prepare ourselves for what we know is coming in the future. The steward was commended because he took advantage of his present situation to help set himself up for what he knew was coming in the future. Listen, we all know that one day God is going to call us home to be with him for all the rest of eternity. Okay? And on that day, we also know that we can take nothing with us. We know that any treasure that we lay up in heaven, we have to lay up now while we have the chance. We've got to seize the opportunities we have now to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven because once our time here is complete and it's finished, the opportunity to do so will have passed. Don't let opportunities to plan for and build for the future pass you by. Seize them. Lay hold of them. Show yourself shrewd and wise by taking advantage of today's opportunities to invest in your eternal future. And this leads to our final section where we're going to note the application Jesus shares with his disciples. So take a look at verse 9 as we note the first of three applications from the steward. Verse 9. 
And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. We'll stop right there. The first application points, excuse me, the first application point that Jesus makes has to do with using the world's riches, okay, money, wealth, uh, unrighteous mammon, uh, is how it reads here in the New King James Version, to invest in the lives of people around us. Jesus told his disciples to use unrighteous mammon to make friends for themselves. And we might scratch our head a little bit there and ask ourselves, what's Jesus saying? Okay, that we should look to buy friends with money? No, not at all. Listen, you, you can't buy true friendship. Okay? That's not something money can buy. You might buy someone's uh, attention or allegiance for part-time, but you're not going to buy true friendship with any kind of money. Okay? That's just not something that can happen. Okay? I think James 4.4 will help us understand a little what Jesus may be referring to here. James writes this in James chapter 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The unbeliever is a son of this world, a friend to the world. But as believers, we are different. And so how can we make friends of people who are of this world? Well, we, we get them out of this world, right? We share the gospel with them, point them to Jesus, allow God to turn them from an enemy into a friend, a brother or sister in the Lord. That is what I believe Jesus is referring to here. We need to use the world's riches to influence people, to turn from their sins and become believers in the gospel, making themselves into friends and co-heirs with Christ of our glorious eternal future. And I believe this also points to the need to invest our unrighteous mammon, okay, the world's riches, in others who are going to be doing the same. Supporting missionaries and ministries that are effectively being used to impact the world for eternity. Jesus says that we are to do this so that when we fail, which is a nice way of saying when we die, okay, when we cease to live here on this earth, those people who will have in, we will have influenced by our unrighteous mammon will be there in heaven to welcome us to our everlasting home. Think about that for a second, you guys. There is the possibility of people making it into heaven based upon yours and mine investments of the resources God has given to us. We can use God's resources to impact all of eternity. That day that God calls you home to be with him for all of eternity, you may see someone there that you've never even met. Some person from a place that you've never even been to. And they're going to come up to you and say, it's because of you, you what you did in your investment in eternity, okay, that I'm here. And you're like, wait, wait a second, how is that possible? Well, you supported the missionary that was sent out to, this, to my homeland. And he shared the gospel with me and I responded to it. It was because you were supporting that person that God used that to bring me to eternity. We have that kind of opportunity today to impact heaven for all of eternity. What's, what better use of our unrighteous mammon, okay, this world's riches, is there? What could be better than using God's wealth that he's entrusted to us to build God's eternal kingdom, Right? The things of this world, church family, I need to remind you, 
The things of this world, they are temporary. Let us make sure that we are investing in the eternal. Let's look at our second application Jesus gave in verses 10 through 12. He says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Here in these verses, Jesus emphasizes the importance of faithfulness by way of contrast once again. He contrasts the faithful with the unfaithful or the unjust. The faithful person will be faithful with that which is least and with that which is most, while the unjust person will be unjust with whatever he has, whether it be least or or the most. Paul writes something very important when it comes to stewardship and what God's expectation is for us as stewards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You guys, the most important quality of a steward is his faithfulness. Because a faithful steward can be trusted with the least of things and the greatest of things. And those who are faithful in the least, they'll be faithful with much. And that's why it's so important that we work on being faithful to the little things, you guys. Sometimes we kind of dismiss, it's not that big of a deal, it's not that important. No, it is of utmost important that we be faithful with the little things. Because when we're faithful with the little things, then we will be entrusted with more. If we sit around waiting for God to entrust us with more and we're never faithful with the little things, guess what? You're never going to be given those greater things. We need to be faithful in little that we might be given opportunities to be faithful in much. Jesus asked the rhetorical question, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, the world's riches, okay, who will commit to your trust the true riches, Right? And the idea is like, hey, if you can't even be faithful with the world's riches, with, with money, okay, who's going to entrust you with the true riches of the kingdom, right? And the, the rhetorical question, it kind of demands a negative response. Well, no one's going to do that, right? Again, Jesus asks, if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what's your own? Again, the obvious answer or the expected answer should be no one. Jesus is looking for us to be faithful stewards of his resources during the time that we have them so that on the day that he calls us home, he may declare to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Faithfulness, church family, is what's needed. Let's look at our final verse and application as we wrap this up. Verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There it is. You cannot serve two masters. This final application point is a matter of priorities. Whom will you serve? Will you serve the Lord or will you serve mammon, earthly riches? You see, from a spiritual standpoint, all people will serve someone or something. Here Jesus gives two choices. You can either serve God or you can serve money. But you cannot do both. 
These two choices there are diametrically opposed from one another. If you choose to serve the Lord, then money will become your servant. And you will be able to use it for building and investing in God's eternal kingdom. If you choose to serve money, you will find that you will start wasting your lives instead of investing your lives. And you will find that money is a terrible master to have. For money promises power and control, but often fails to deliver. Great fortunes can be made and lost overnight. And no amount of money can provide health and happiness and eternal life. Church family, choose wisely whom you will serve. One can have both money and God, but one cannot serve both money and God. Most all of us here have money. Let's just be honest. Let's be blunt. I've, I've done this before. I hope you're not offended, okay? When you look at the world's population, we are at the cream of the crop, okay? We are exceedingly rich in compared to the world's population, okay? The fact that you probably have money in your pocket right now shows that you are in the upper echelon, okay? We all have money. The question that we must consider is, do we have money or does our money have us? Whom are we serving? And it can be difficult to ascertain sometimes. You know, our hearts would hopefully say, we love God and we serve Him. But what do our actions say? What do our priorities show? You know, the question has been asked, how can we tell who or what we serve? Listen, one way to answer this question is to consider the following principle. You will sacrifice for your God. You will sacrifice for your God. If you will sacrifice for the sake of money, but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, then you have your answer. May our priorities be in line with our Lord's. May we be those that are good and faithful stewards who seize opportunities to invest in the eternal and to serve God with all the resources that he has given to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you even for these challenging portions of Scripture that we come to at times, challenging to understand sometimes, but even also challenging just to receive and apply to our hearts and lives, Lord. Lord, I do hope and I pray that each and every person here has chosen to serve you, Lord. Lord, that they would not be deceived by seeking after um, this earth's goods, Lord, the unrighteous women, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would serve you with all of our hearts, with all our minds, all our souls, Lord, that we would give you our all, Lord, not just uh, our, our treasures, but, Lord, our talents, our time, Lord, that we would spread the truth that you've entrusted to us as well. And, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us and continue to draw us close to you. Lord, I ask that as we go through just over the next couple of weeks, Lord, and we look at this topic of finances and the world's wealth, Lord, I pray that we'd be sensitive to what your Spirit's saying to us. Lord, that we wouldn't be too quick just to kind of tune out. But, Lord, we'd be receptive uh, to all that your Spirit desires to say to us and to, to teach us. And so, Lord, we give you 
um, just our studies, our continued study through this gospel. We ask for your continued leading and guiding. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.